Kristen. Hi, Sarah. Great to be back. Yeah, spotlight on France is back. La rentrée. We're back. La rentrée means the, the re-entering. Yeah. I guess re-entering from, from the summer break. Summer break. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Everything kicks off now. In fact, it's more in September that things kick off than it is in January. I've had to get used to that, that it really feels like the beginning of the year. So it's the beginning of what for us? I don't know. Let's see. This rentrée, a big issue, of course, is going to be pension reform. That's already being worked on. But besides that, it's this this new law on medically assisted procreation. This is fertility treatments. Today, you only have access to this, to like sperm donation and that kind of thing, if you're a married heterosexual couple with proven infertility. And that's been going on now for a number of years, and it seems to be relatively well accepted. Mm -hmm. About 3,000 people a year um, have access to this in France right now. But there are a lot of people, such as single women uh, and couples of women, lesbian couples, who would like access to the same artificial insemination yeah, procedures. Yeah, and, they, and they're not allowed to do it in France. Um, and you can imagine this has become a key issue for the LGBT movement in France. Um, and it actually, they kind of see this as the next fight, you know, after the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2013. The next step is, okay, well, we can get married. What about having our children and getting them recognized? Um, so the idea, of course, is that this law would open up medically assisted procreation, sperm donation for lesbian couples. So they've just started debating it in Parliament, yeah. but it's very controversial, isn't it? Indeed. And and like gay marriage, uh, it's quite striking a nerve, um, though, you know, slightly less so than gay marriage was. Gay marriage was a big question of whether or not it would pass with yeah. the conservatives really coming out in the streets. This is it, this will likely pass. It yeah. has large and support. Probably, in a way, this whole issue of, uh, of medically assisted procreations benefited from the whole debate around gay marriage. You know, it got through and now public opinion in France is accepted uh, broadly and it would seem now officially the figures show that around two-thirds of the French population have no problem with uh, medically assisted procreation. But interestingly this is all this debate is within a, a bioethics law. This is a law that needs to be renewed every five to seven years and to keep up with scientific progress and the debate that we're looking at is over the details like reimbursement of the care, the legal recognition of the children, that kind of thing. But even before thinking about the debate, I was thinking it'd be interesting to know what's already happening. Yeah. Um, it's not like single women and lesbian couples are not getting pregnant. Um, they're just going elsewhere. They're going to Belgium, to the Netherlands, to Spain, where it is legal. Um, and I met one woman to find out exactly how she did it. Gwendoline Desarmeniens is talking to her 18-month daughter, Adèle, getting her ready for a midday nap. She talks to her daughter a lot, and often about where she comes from. I tell my daughter that I was uh, alone, and I wanted a baby from a long time, so uh, I went to Spain to a clinic because I can't have a baby uh, alone. And um, I tell her that a man gave a little seed so her mom can have a baby. Des Armeniens has a son who's almost 22, who she had when she was 21. She always wanted a second child. In my family, we are four brothers and sisters, and I always wanted to have a big family. But sometimes you have life story that make that you don't have a second child. Des Armeniens left her son's father soon after he was born. She realized she was a lesbian. Several years ago, she was in a relationship with a woman. They had a plan to have a baby. They were living in Paris and were going to go to Belgium for artificial insemination. But the relationship ended. She left 
So one day I was 39, I said to myself, oh, you're 39, it's now or it's never. What do you want to do? Do I really want this second child? What am I ready to do to have it? So I told myself, okay, if you don't do now, you may regret it one day, just try. So she did. She moved back to Montpellier, where she grew up. It made sense to go to Spain, which is nearby, and where artificial insemination is legal for any woman, no questions asked. She decided on a clinic in Girona, north of Barcelona, a three-hour drive from home. That was October 2016. She went to her French doctor for the prenatal tests. Four months later, in February 2017, she went to Girona for an evaluation. I was dreaming a little bit, and I thought it will be uh, artificial insemination. But they said, oh, you're 40. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> you're too old. You have 5% of chance that it works. Artificial insemination, where the sperm is injected into the uterus, is much less invasive than IVF, or in vitro fertilization, which involves an operation. The doctor said her chances of getting pregnant were much higher with IVF, 33%. IVF is also much more expensive. Desamignan ended up paying 5,000 euros for the procedure, but she decided it was the way to go. I said, okay, 33%, let's go, because I don't really have a choice. It's better to do like this. IVF involves extracting your eggs to be fertilized in a lab, and the embryos are then re-implanted into your uterus. It means you need to take hormones for two weeks before you ovulate to increase the number of eggs available. Desarmenia found a doctor in France who was willing to prescribe her the hormones, illegally, but it meant she didn't have to pay for the drugs, which cost 2,500 euros. The French Social Security covered it. She gave herself daily injections, and the date of the operation was set for Monday, May 29, 2017. The reimplantation would be three days later. Just on day, I went to Spain with a friend. I didn't drive over there alone. It was the day of Mother's Day. I went over there, <laughs> and you're a little bit stressed because you don't know if it's going to work. I didn't have a lot of eggs. I had a lot of drugs, but I had only five eggs. That's really not enough. Uh, the French doctor told me it won't work. Mm, you're going over there, but it won't work. She had the five eggs extracted. Only three were viable. So she was pessimistic when she showed up on Thursday morning. I went nine in the morning. I was really, really scared. You're telling yourself it has to work. There were two viable embryos. She had them both implanted. That was when she learned some details about the donor. She'd had no choice in the matter, though. Spanish law says donors need to be matched physically to either the father, if there is one, or the mother, if she's alone. The day I had the implantation, I knew that it was um, he has uh, brown hair and green eyes, and is O positive blood. Desarmenia has brown hair and brown eyes. After she spent the weekend in Spain, she went home to wait. Two weeks later, she had a blood test. And... I didn't believe it. I thought, oh my God, it worked. I'm dreaming. Is it true? And you go back to work and you say, I'm not going to work a lot this afternoon. <laughs> 18 months after she'd started the process, she was pregnant. She surprised everyone, like her boss. She works as a secretary for an architect. When I told him, he said, huh? You're pregnant, but you're lesbian. Yeah, I know. I'm not sterile. I'm just lesbian. At that point, it became like any other pregnancy, though she had some worries about what her daughter would look like. I was a little scared to maybe not uh, recognize anything of me in her. But the first day when she was born, I didn't think about it. They put her in my arms. 
It was just magic. I don't think about the donor. I was just seeing only her. <laughs> Comment tu t'appelles? Adele is a chubby baby with straight dark hair, brown eyes. She really has my, my eyes, my mouth. There are some things like don't come for me. Her hands and her feet are not mine. I know it. But she really, really looks like me. When we see her, you know it's my daughter. Her daughter will never know the identity of the donor. Spain keeps this anonymous, which Desamina appreciates. It was too hard for me to say to myself she had somebody that will, she will maybe want to meet one day. I had a lot, a lot, a lot of exchange with people on this subject because not everybody is okay with that. And they told to me, oh, you're selfish because you're thinking about you. What about your daughter? That's true. That's true, but it was what I wanted. Desamina is a little frustrated that the process of having her daughter involves so much time and money. The procedure cost her 5,000 euros out of pocket, plus about 1,000 euros in travel and lodging in Spain. And if she'd paid for the hormones, that would have been another 2,500 euros. If I was heterosexual, I would have been taken in charge by the French. We don't have the, the same rights, so it makes me to say, oh, they have access, we can't. But... It's not the solution to be mad all the time. Today, we're going ahead. We're going to maybe have a law. And it's, uh, it's good for the other generation. It's not a regret to have done it in Spain. My daughter is here. She's wonderful. I'm telling myself that maybe some friends of mine that are younger will have access to that. It's wonderful. Sarah, we heard that. She spent 6,000 euros um, out of her own pocket. Yeah, getting she saved, pregnant. Yeah, yeah, just to get pregnant. She saved up for a long time. It's quite expensive. For heterosexual couples in France today, this fertility treatment is covered by Social Security, so they wouldn't have paid anything. So there, this is where this new law is coming into play. Um, the new law, again, it will very likely pass. will legalize it for all, open up coverage under the Social Security system for all women, and then regardless of their couple status, but also regardless of their medical situation. Yeah, and that is one of the sticking points, isn't it? Yeah. The opposition against this new law, it's like, why should the Social Security system be paying for something which is basically a person's individual choice and is not, strictly speaking, in their eyes, a medical condition. Absolutely, and this law is not going to pass without a fight. Yeah, and some of the other concerns they have, it's the idea of having children without fathers, uh, as they say, and some of them are raising the issue that if we allow uh, medically assisted procreation for everyone, it's a small step down the slippery slope towards surrogacy, which, right. of course, is, is forbidden in France. Forbidden in France, and the government says it will be forbidden. It, it's not at all part of this. And if this law does pass, Sarah, does it mean suddenly that Spanish clinics will lose all their French business? Well, it's a good question. I think they've built up business models based on, on an expectation that a lot of French people are coming in there. Um, I, I think probably not necessarily, at least right away. Spain has an older age limit for this. So France limits you to age 43. Even heterosexual couples right now can't do uh, medically assisted procreation after that. Uh, Spain, it's 46 years old. So if you're older, maybe you'll go to Spain. Um, there's also the big issue of the anonymity of donors. And we heard that in, in in the report, the new French law could open up the possibility that, that kids would be able to find out the identity of their mm. donor, um, or at least getting non-identifying information about the donor when they turn 18. 
That will, of course, depend on the donor's choice, but there'll be the option. Spain, of course, doesn't allow any of that. And so those, if you want full anonymity, like Gwendolyn wanted, you'd probably still go to Spain. And of course, then there's the question of sperm. Some what? say there's not enough in France. Is that true? Really? Yeah, yeah. Spain? There's not enough donors, it turns out. Donors, but it doesn't pay, does it? It doesn't pay. France does not pay. Spain pays, which is one of the reasons why they have pretty high donor levels. Um, some say, though, that this new law might raise awareness, possibly bring in more donors. But there's no question of suddenly sperm donors being paid. No, I don't think I don't think that's going to happen. There's, it, there's a, a, a strong feeling in France that anything having to do with the body, any donation really stays out of the economic realm. Sarah, you have heard about the Lascaux paintings, haven't you? Yeah, in the in the caves, right? That's right. They're some of the oldest vestiges of prehistoric art in the world. Uh, they're in Montignac in the south of France. They're so precious that they've been called the uh, prehistoric Sistine Chapel. But do you know how they were discovered? No. Well, it's thanks to four teenagers and a dog. Hmm. Would you believe it? I landed on this riveting piece of information this week when I was looking for a bit of history for this week's show. So the discovery of the caves was made on on the 12th of September 1940 and four days previously an 18 year old local boy called Marcel Ravida was out walking his dog the dog was called Robot <laughs> um, and Robot fell down a little hole that had been left by an uprooted tree Ravida began throwing stones down it to see you know just how deep it was and realized that they rolled really really deep down he got all excited because he thought he might have found this underground passage which according to local history led through to Lascaux Manor in the end, uh, he got his best mate, uh, Jacques Marcel, and two friends who were staying on holiday in the village from Paris to come along. They went down in this cave and they discovered this treasure chest of wall paintings. Mostly, as we now know, there were representations of animals and horses and stags and so on, and some what looked like creatures from mythology. And of course, now we know that those paintings actually date back to between 15 and 17,000 years old. So really, really old. It's quite a discovery. I mean, I guess the kids wanted to protected. Of course, this is 1940. France was occupied by the Nazis at the time. Exactly. Ravida and Marcel, the local boys, they set up camp at the cave to watch over it. Uh, they even started giving little tours of the cave and they set up a cafe in the summer of 1941. So they had this little business going. Later on, Ravida took up the maquis, you know, he became a member of the resistance and he hid out in the cave against the Nazi occupation. For two of the other boys, it wasn't quite so jolly. Simon and his family who were Jewish were deported to Buchenwald and George another of the boys was also caught up in the tragedy of war but then just after the war in 1948 the grotto was opened to the public and Ravida and Marcel became its first guides. Yeah because they knew it so well but the cave though today is closed right? The cave was closed in 1963 because the artificial lighting was making all those wonderful painting fade and also it was contributing to the growth of green algae on the walls and in fact interestingly Marcel and Ravida were the ones who who first noticed that that green algae was growing in the first place. So we've got a lot to thank these young men for. And and let's not forget Robot the no, Dog. Robot the Dog. <laughs> today, uh. today, though, you can visit a replica of Lascaux. That was opened 20 years after, right, in 1983. Yep. Yeah, and it's doing very well. By the way, um, Georges Agnel told the story to journalists some years later, how just after the war, his dad wrote to the ministry and said, hey, come on, this is such an amazing discovery. Can't the boys have, you know, a bit of a reward for all of this? And the reply was that they had trespassed on public property. Oh, not very nice. No, how mean can you get? Nous sommes là, 
We are the young guard is the first line of this song. They're singing, we are raised in suffering. We will be victorious or die fighting for the good cause. These are young communist Sarah singing the anthem, uh, La Jeune Garde, and it was recorded back in the 1920s. Now, the chorus warns the bourgeoisie and the clerics that the young guard is coming. The revolution is advancing, they say, and will be victorious tomorrow. And, Sarah, we can expect that anthem to be revived this weekend at the annual Communist Party Festival. It's called Fête de Luma, and it's held just outside Paris. The Fête de Luma is a big music festival, isn't well, it? it? It is, and it's become France's biggest annual music festival um, because the communist newspaper L'Humanité, which set it up uh, back in 1930, understood very clearly that they needed money to keep the newspaper going and also to keep the movement going. Um, but as well as music, this uh, Fête de Luma is a big forum for hundreds of left parties from all over the world, by the way. So they come together and have lots of discussions about how to take their ideals forward. So it's also a great place for getting new recruits, especially to the youth wing of the communist movement here in France. There's still young communists joining the party? There are, and there are about 10,000. I wouldn't say it's growing, but it's pretty stable. What's drawing these people to this movement? Well, I know it does seem surprising. Three decades after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the end of the Soviet Union, with everything that we know also happened, with, with Stalin, with hundreds of thousands killed, you know, with repression and, of course, with an example like China and Cuba today where, let's be honest, freedom of speech is not exactly uh, alive and kicking. So it does seem surprising that people are still drawn to the Communist Party. But they are. Of course, they're interested in issues like equality of opportunity and wealth redistribution, free education, social housing. Issues, though, that some leftist parties, other leftist parties in France are addressing as well. So why are the communists still having so much clout? Well, that's a good question. So that's why I sat down with Léon Desfontaines. He's the National Secretary of the Communist Party's Youth Wing. I met him at Party HQ here in Paris. He's now 23 years old and he joined the movement when he was 16. My family is not communist, but they gave me some values. And one of those values is the desire for justice. And um, one of the biggest uh, injustices in the world, I think, it's the uh, exploitation, the man by the man. So... When I am 15 years old, I read some books from Marx, like the Manifest of Communist Party. I told everyone I was a communist, but I don't know what it significates, uh, really. At uh, the time, you didn't really know what yeah, communism yeah. meant. And uh, in my city, in Amiens. This yeah. industrial town in the north of France. Yeah. yeah, we have a big fight in 2012. A big factory uh, closed, Gujar. So this is a tyre factory, huge employer at the time yeah. in Amiens. It was the biggest factory in the city, and lot of lot of workers in the streets are very angry because Goodyear makes profits. So when you saw all these people protesting, people who'd lost their jobs, it had a big impact on you. Yeah, yeah, a big impact. I thought that what I've read is uh, yeah. really in the street. Yeah, so it, instead of just being a theoretical, ideological position, yeah. you actually saw people losing their jobs. I was revolting. You were disgusted. Yeah, yeah. When you announced to people around you that you were a communist, whether it's friends or family, how did people react? A lot of friends uh, joined the Youth Communist after that, so it was... You had a big influence. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And, uh, but for their my family, first reaction, the first reaction was, Leon, you're mad. You've become yeah. a red under the bed. <laughs> my parents, a little bit, but, you know, the parents of my parents are right-wing, and 
my parents, they were in left, so generation after generation, we go on the left. So <laughs> they said, okay, it's interesting. Be careful because you are young, but it's interesting. Some people, when they think of communism, they immediately think of hundreds of thousands of people killed. They think of people being imprisoned for their beliefs. They think of anti-democratic behavior, spying. Um, the image of communism is quite poor. Even here within France, some more right-leaning commentators have said, you know, oh, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's shameful that France still has a communist party. And here you are, you know, young communist and proud of it. How do you balance out the image with your beliefs? Well, we need to learn our history to not make the same mistakes as in the past. So we need to learn that history. But, you know, I, I was born in 1996, so the Cold War, I don't live in, uh, in the fear of a nuclear war. So it's, it's different. And new generations are very interested by uh, communist ID, communist values. It's very interesting to be in the youth communist movement because we can speak with the new generation of communism. So give us a sense then of this new generation of communism in 2019. What, are, what exactly are you defending? We defend democracy, of course, uh, because a lot of uh, people think communism is uh, less democracy. No, I think it's opposite because I think communism is with democracy for the workers in the factories, the democracy for the students in the high school, the democracy uh, every and I think democracy is not just a vote every year. I think democracy is debate, is learn what is the way society functions. The first idea of communism is equal access to everything. Of course, communism is to destroy social class, to different workers, to different the public, you know, the welfare state. The welfare state. Yeah. Today we have uh, just a handful of people makes profits and Everybody needs the money. Leon, how does being a communist affect your everyday life? But we, we live in society. We don't want to live in the forest uh, without capitalism production. So I live in a, in a house like every people. Do you use you know, all the things that we say are products of capitalism? Cheap clothes imported from faraway countries, Uber, uh, taxis. Do you use those services or do you boycott them? I use some of them. Uh, we have a table, we have a chair. That's the capitalism products. We cannot boycott everything that's production of exploitation because when we are communists, we are in the society. We fight not for the destruction of capitalism. We, we fight to improve it, the capitalism. Communism is the progress. 200 years ago, capitalism was the progress. Today, the progress is communism. Could you envisage maybe a name change? Because the word communism does frighten some people, and it might even frighten some young people who actually would agree with a lot of what you stand for, but who think that the word communism is scary. Well, I think uh, the, our name had a big, big history. We have uh, made a lot of mistakes, we have made a lot of good things. Paid holidays, our history is the resistance against uh, Nazi uh, in the World War II. Our history is uh, social security, you know. 
we need to, to show that. Are you hopeful for the future? Yeah, <laughs> of course. I think the new generations is very interesting. They, they know that capitalism is not a solution for the future. Uh, when we see a lot of young people in demonstration to save the planet, to say capitalism destroys our planet, is very interesting. We have the same values, we have the same uh, demands. So I have a lot of hope to the future because I think the newer generation is a generation of the end of capitalism and maybe for the new society. I am very, very hopeful for, for the future. So hearing Leon there, it really sounds like he has this attachment to history, even at 23 years old. Yeah, and that's one of the things that came out of our discussion, a sense of being part of history, even with its good and, and bad points. Um, for example, he talked about the Yellow Vest movement and how they shared some of the concerns about, about uh, inequality in France at the moment. But he said, no, the Yellow Vest, the problem is that they're not organized. You know, there's no structure to the movement. They and don't have a historical structure. And no, they don't and have they, an identity and they, like exactly, that. Exactly. And they resist a certain amount of organization and structure today whereas members of the communist party that's precisely what they like having they like being able to get things done and it's true that at local level in politics here in france often there are uh, you know communist uh, local councillors mm -hmm. and they do manage to do a lot to get things done so what is this movement the youth communist movement in particular what does the future though of this movement look like well, 10 years ago, it was a very Parisian movement. About 80% of the members were in Paris. Now it's shifting because partly because living in Paris has become so expensive. There's very little student accommodation. So in fact, they're sort of losing a sort of working class student base here in Paris. And now uh, the movement is mainly rural or in small towns. About 75% is outside of Paris. It's changing shape. Um, it has quite a large number of women now. In fact, there are more women than men for the first time in history, which sort of goes against the rather macho uh, history of the movement. It did tend to be very male-dominated. And earlier this year in March, several members of the youth movement were expelled uh, after being accused of sexual harassment. So, Alison, we, we talked at the beginning of the program about the rentrée, how it really feels like the beginning of something. It's the beginning of the year. It's the beginning of school, isn't it, for so many kids? Yeah, it's the first time at school, going back to school. Yeah, and so it means you get new teachers. And some of those teachers are not always, let's say, the most sympathetic, the most empathic uh, that you, you might hope for. Well, France does have this stereotype of having an educational system that is, mm, say, more on the negative reinforcement than the positive reinforcement. And it seems that it is a stereotype, but for some teachers, that actually can be a bit true. Yeah, my daughter's maths teacher, for example, on the first day coming into class said, basically, anyone who doesn't get 13 out of 20 in your maths tests goes into detention. And 13 out of 20 is a pretty good grade. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like good. So definitely there can be more of a system of, of, of stick than carrot in France. So while we're waiting for this system to change and perhaps wait for, for newer teachers, I'll be getting my kids to listen to a bit of this. Si aujourd'hui je prends le micro, c'est pas pour qu'on fasse de moi une icône. Non, laisse-moi tranquille, je suis qu'un prof de maths et il est temps de parler de polygone. Donc prends ta règle, mais pas ton compas avec un crayon.
So, Alison, what are we listening to here? Well, you heard him talking about polygons. Well, this is the maths teacher. His name is Redouane Abassi. This is his latest online tutorial. He actually goes by the name of Great Teacher Isaba. <laughs> this is lesson eight, and it's about polygons. So you're learning about math through music, through totally, rap. Yeah, he uses a lot of rap and he uses some cute graphics to explain some of maths's slightly more complicated problems, uh, whether it's you know Pythagoras and all the rest of it. And his videos get hundreds of thousands of hits. Will they make mathematicians out of all our, our kids? Maybe not, but it could help encourage youngsters not to give up on maths. Maybe help to put some fun back in. Maybe even help you to get more than 13 out of 20. Can't be that bad of a thing. France is uh, pretty obsessed with math. Uh, you fail at your own peril. Yeah, it's really a valued subject here, and it has to be said that France has a lot of very good mathematicians. It has a, a thousand researchers in maths, and. Many people, having excelled at maths, then go to work in the city of London. They're really, you know, valued in the financial sector. That might change, though, a bit with Brexit. Exactly. That's it for Spotlight on France. We'll be back next week. And if there's anything that you've heard and you're interested in, or if you have questions that you'd like to ask, then you know we'd be really happy to hear from you. You could send us an email at spotlight.france@rfi.fr. This show was mixed by Erwan Rom. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, your reviews help. See you next week. See you next week.